right, so we are glad to have our, uh, our parents back. Some of the, uh, the younger parents were in a, a class for a while. So now we've got the full retinue uh, here uh, this morning, and, uh, and we should have lots of interaction. Uh, but just want to get you caught up as to where we are and where we were last week. We had uh, several weeks ago, and for about five weeks, we had a series on evangelism. Uh, and then we transitioned last week to beginning a series on some of the minor prophets. Uh, we have decided, I have decided, that's the royal we, uh, we have decided, uh, we're actually going to do two prophets, Lord willing. We're going to look at Amos, uh, who was uh, quite possibly the first of the writing prophets of all of the prophets that, uh, that we have uh, in the scriptures, um, and also Malachi, who was the last of the writing prophets before the time in the New Testament. Um, and so we're going to catch the bookends of the prophetical time period uh, through Amos and Malachi. And, and last time we took sort of an extended introduction to prophetical literature in general. We talked about some of the difficulties that we have in facing uh, or interpreting uh, the prophetical books, things like the history and the geography, uh, things like uh, the, the importance of the covenant and trying to understand especially those first five books of the Bible and how they relate to what the prophets later would say about what's happening in Israel and Judah and, and everything that's happening there. Uh, we talked about some of the difficulty of uh, thinking through poetry and, and some of those different things, but just got ourselves oriented to thinking uh, poetically and prophetically. Uh, and then we talked a little bit about Amos. Uh, again, Amos is very early, writing about the 760s B.C., and he's unique. Uh, he's unique because he's one of the two prophets sent to the northern tribes of Israel. Uh, only two uh, before the northern tribes of Israel were taken away. And so Hosea and, uh, and Amos are those two prophets. But of those two, Amos is even a little bit more unique uh, because he was a man from the southern tribes. Uh, he was from just south of Jerusalem in Tekoa, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And the Lord sent him from the southern kingdom... This is about 150 years after they split, sent him from the southern kingdom into the northern kingdom to proclaim God's message of judgment. And you can imagine how that would have been received in the north. Uh, the north and the south at that time were not exactly on friendly terms with one another. Uh, they would run raids into one another's territories. They would try to burn down one another's capitals. They would, uh, all sorts of skirmishes between the north and the south. And so it was, it was not well received uh, when, uh, when Amos showed up from the south uh, to speak God's judgment to the north. And we began to, to set the stage for some of these things. Uh, and uh, I suggested that James Montgomery Boyce has a really good summary of Amos. He says uh, that Amos is about the idolatry of things and the oppression that may be entailed in accumulating them. Uh, so Amos is written to people in extreme prosperity. Prosperity is everywhere in Israel in the time of Amos, and the kingdom is expanding, not because uh, King Jeroboam II was necessarily a righteous king, uh, but because the Lord allowed their borders to expand, and, and Syria and Assyria were, were in skirmishes between themselves and so didn't have time to deal with Israel, and, and the kingdom was expanding, there was prosperity, there was peace, uh, and yet in the midst of this prosperity and peace, uh, the people in the northern kingdom uh, just sort of went in the direction of interpreting that peace as a rubber stamp of approval on all of their religious practices, which we will find as we go through were not very good. Uh, but they mixed these, these pagan practices that they had picked up from the nations around them uh, into their own 
um, materialism. That's one of the, the main sins that uh, we'll see Amos railing against, materialism. And uh, what today, we, we, Dave brought up the idea last week, we'd, this is really about social justice. This is about caring for the weak and the oppressed and the fatherless and the widow and how in Israel at this time, the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer, and there was this divide where the rich were uh, basically stepping on the heads of the oppressed. We'll get some of that language in chapter 2 today, uh, and, uh, and oppressing the oppressed even more in order to gain more things. So it's the idolatry of things and the oppression that can be entailed, uh, says, uh, says Montgomery Boyce. Uh, so let's now begin by reading again um, the first two chapters. You'll notice... Uh, there is a repeated uh, structure that carries through these two chapters. There is this, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. And so it runs not just through the nations that are around Israel and Judah, uh, but takes that same language into Judah and Israel. And so they really hold together. We're going to try and, and scoot through as much as we can of this today. Uh, and uh, next week we will move on to chapter 3 even if we haven't finished everything that we want to say. So let's begin uh, by reading Amos, beginning in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of Amos was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. In the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion. And utters his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people and delivered them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword cast off all pity. In his anger he tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle with a tempest in the day of whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. 
So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was just as strong, and who was as strong as the oak. Excuse me. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine. And commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall, press, shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and... He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Well, thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless its reading in our hearing. Uh, I want to look at, at several of these sections here. There is this introductory uh, note that we read last time, uh, verse 1, where Amos is setting uh, the context for us, and then you'll often notice in prophetical books uh, that there is, we spoke last time about, uh, about prophets being almost like uh, covenant lawyers, that they're bringing a lawsuit against God's people on the basis of covenant that they have broken with the Lord. And, uh, and it's almost like uh, rendering a, a summons to court. You'll see this very often in the beginning of prophetical books where the Lord announces uh, Isaiah is a great example of this. Uh, Isaiah calls the heavens and the earth to witness against his people, and, and it almost seems like the Lord is setting the court and calling in the witnesses and calling in the jury, and it's even creation itself which is being called to witness against the people. The same thing happens here uh, in verse 2. Uh, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now, when you think about this, uh, verse 2, in the context of the Lord judging the nations, uh, what strikes you about this idea that here's God roaring from Jerusalem, roaring from Zion, uh, and the Lord God is speaking not just to the people who live in Zion, not just to the people who live in Jerusalem, but he actually begins further out than that. He begins with the nations that are not in covenant agreement with him, the ones that he has not bound himself to, and yet the Lord shows up speaking against the nations much in the same way that he often speaks against his people, Israel. What does 
that teach us about the way the Lord looks upon the world and, and the reference that the world has to the Lord of Zion and of Jerusalem? John? Okay. Okay. He's attentive to everything that happens. Um, in, in what sense? Just that he notices it. Okay, so first he notices it, and, and what else? Having noticed it, what does the Lord do? It's not a trick question. Tim? He judges it. Now, now where do you get off saying that your God, uh, in the holy book that you read, is able to judge the whole world? Okay, good. <laughs> good. 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 Um, just so you know, th this would not have been any more um, acceptable in the ancient world than it is in our modern world. Um, all of these other nations had a sense that, that they each had, in fact, they, they almost sort of agreed, they had their gods and somebody else had another god. We see that when the Philistines, who are represented in Gaza here, uh, in, uh, in 1 Samuel, and the Philistines capture the Ark of the Lord, and they say, well, we're, we've clearly vanquished their God, not just this people, but we're going to bring their God, and we're going to set him up in our temple, and, and the Ark of the Covenant will almost be like a, a trophy uh, for, uh, for Dagon. And we know how that story goes, and it doesn't go well for Dagon or for the people of Philistia, uh, and yet this, there is this confrontation almost that the Lord is the God over all the earth. Uh, one of the other contemporary prophets at this time um, was Jonah. Um, he, he didn't leave us much of his writing, much of his prophecy, uh, but we do have a narrative uh, of his account. And you remember um, when he is on the ship with the men and the seas are roaring and tossing and they don't know what to do. And they ask him, well, who is your God? And they've all decided, well, my God is, is this God, and my God is that God. And Jonah says, something to the effect of, my God is the God who made all the land and the sea. He's the God of everything. And then they're very afraid. And this is, this is the biblical idea. Uh, this is uh, absolute monotheism. There are not many gods over all the world. There is one God, the creator of heavens and earth and all things and all people that dwell therein. Uh, and he has a right to judge all people, and he does judge all people. Now, uh, he does that, but he also judges from a particular vantage point. He says he roars, and we almost expect the Lord roars from heaven. Uh, the Lord God of heaven, whose dwelling is not with man, he roars from heaven. No, no, this is the Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem. So what does that add to the dynamic that we're looking at here? Teresa? Hmm. 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 Yeah, that, uh, that not only is there one God uh, who is over all, but we get here with the, uh, we get in touch with the doctrine of, of God's choice, God's sovereign choice of a particular people, and that's what he told the Israelites when he was bringing them out of Egypt. It's not not because you're more numerous than all the other people. It's not because you're so wonderful, but it's so that I will put my name upon you. Uh, and then as the temple is being built, uh, almost as a, as a condescension, almost as a, a caring for this people that he's chosen, he said, I will put my name here 
in Jerusalem, in this temple. I will cause my name to dwell here. Not that, uh, not that the highest heavens could contain the Lord. That's what Solomon prays when the temple is built. Oh, Lord, the, the highest heavens can't contain you. Uh, and yet, he has said his name will dwell among his people. And so there is one God who's over all, who judges all, and yet he has a, a special relationship with relation to this people that he's chosen. I think we need to, we need to remember that, uh, that the Lord is over all. There is one God who judges all men. All men and women uh, are held accountable to this one, but he has a special relationship with this people that he's chosen. And we'll see when we get into some of the, um, the oracles against Israel that that is a double-edged sword. That cuts, cuts both ways, that um, you know, the Lord cares for his people, but he also holds them accountable to what they have received. Cynthia, you were going to add to that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh, there's this great quote. Where is it? Um, Alec Mateer. He says, feel the weight of the monotheism of Amos. When he reviews the world of the have-nots, the nations who never received any revelation of Yahweh, he takes absolutely no cognizance of the fact that each worshipped a god of its own. Such information was quite irrelevant. It was not to that God that they were answerable, nor could that God save them in the day of Yahweh's wrath. There was only one God over the whole earth, and to him they must and would render account. Uh, and people don't like to hear that. Uh, they didn't like to hear it then. They don't like to hear it now. But this is the biblical truth, and this is where we begin, that the Lord is able uh, and does judge all men. Dave? Uh, help, help, help us all with that. Help me especially, but help the rest of us too. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still transcendent. Okay. He's giving a reference point. Um, Calvin liked to say that God lists to us the way that a mother lists to her baby, a baby talk. Uh, adults don't talk like that, uh, but we talk like that when we pick up a little squishy baby, um, and, and God condescends, he baby talks to us. Um, and so in the, in the way that we can understand, God is giving a reference, um, the Lord roars, well, God isn't 
literally a lion. Um, but you've heard lions roar at the zoo or, or wherever, and you get the idea it is this. Uh, in fact, the, the word there for roaring is he's roaring because he's going to pounce. Not, uh, you know, he's, he's back in his den and he's just protecting. No, he's, he's on the move. Uh, and, and the Lord is coming out in vengeance and in judgment, and it is a furious and a fearful thing that the Lord is coming, but he's, he's beginning somewhere. He's beginning with, with Judah and Israel, and, and with this idea um, of, of emanation. I'm not sure that I've gotten it, um, but it does recall um, John chapter 1, that no one has seen God, um, but the Son, uh, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And, uh, and we see that we've received the law through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus. He is, that's why Jesus came. He, in your language, particularized, I don't know that I, I understand it enough to use that language, um, but, but he makes God known because he comes in the flesh. He's not an emanation of God, he is God. He is God in the flesh. Uh, he is one of the three persons of the Godhead showing up in our sphere uh, with, with body and blood that people could put their hands on and they could see him walking in the streets. Uh, but yeah, it's important to understand the way that the Lord uh, gives us this, this sort of reference point. Bill? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one more and then we're going to keep moving on. Yeah, um, this, this ought to recall, remember, when you're reading the prophets, keep the Pentateuch in the back of your mind. Genesis, uh, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, keep those first five in the back of your mind. And we've got this picture of the Lord with this deafening roar and also this speech, this intelligible speech coming on the top of a mountain. Uh, and it ought to make you remember Zion. Uh, not Zion, but um, Sinai. Uh, I just drew a blank there. Uh, I've never read Exodus. I have no idea. Uh, it, it ought to make you think of Sinai where the Lord speaks. Um, and, and I think this is a, this is a huge thing um, because uh, Matir, I think, puts his finger right on it in that quote that I gave you. When you get to uh, Judah and Israel... The Lord takes them to task for rejecting his law. Uh, and yet, the God who speaks takes the other nations to task, but maybe on a different standard. He doesn't bring up to any of these other nations, he doesn't say, you've transgressed my covenants and my commandments. And yet he does take them to task. Now, he does judge them, although there is perhaps, if we can put it this way, there's a different, there's a different standard. He's the Lord who roars, he's the Lord who utters, he makes himself known, and even if people haven't known, they're still held accountable. Okay. Uh, so with that in mind, let's, let's look just at these six other nations, nations outside of Israel and Judah. Uh, what do you know about, uh, or what do you recognize about some of these sins uh, that, are, uh, that are spoken of? Uh, what does it tell you about the kinds of things that God is concerned with? 
What do we learn about God's character by the way that he condemns these sins? How so? Give me an example. The Gileadites uh, are Israelites. That is the northern region. It's sort of the borderlands between northern Israel and Syria. And that's where a lot of the skirmishes happened um, between those two nations. And so uh, he is, in some sense, taking them to task for crimes against his people. Um, this idea of uh, they've threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. What is that? that imagery evoke? What kind of things are they doing? It's, it's metaphorical, right? It's, it's showing us something, but the Lord says you've, you've threshed them with threshing sledges of iron. What's the, what's the image that we ought to have in our mind? You get the gold star for today, Teresa. Beautiful. Um, so two things that you're raising. One, this idea of threshing with threshing sledges of iron. Uh, this, this, is a, this is cruelty. This is not just that you've come against my people and so I'm raising up in defense of my people. Um, there's some of that, I think. But it's also the extreme cruelty that's involved in here. We're not sure what exactly this is. But it, it's almost going above and beyond what was necessary to protect themselves. The, the Syrians or, or Damascus, wherever they were, as they're coming into to Gilead, they have, they have utterly crushed. So the idea of threshing on the threshing floor and you crush the grain to separate it from the, the husk and the kernel. Um, and that's the idea here. It's this, it's this extreme cruelty more than was necessary. But then you also raise this, this issue of the three and the four. Um, and I think you've, you've put your finger exactly on what Amos is getting at. You notice that in each of these, uh, it's repeated. It's the same structure for each one. Um, and, and we recognize this from some of the other places, uh, some of the wisdom literature. Uh, the Lord says uh, six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to the Lord. And he's saying it would be bad enough if there were just six sins, but that seventh one is, is just over and above, the, the cup runneth over, almost, in, in a sense. And in each of these situations, when the Lord is coming against Damascus and Gaza and all of the nations and even his own people, what we, what we get is, you know, sometimes people will look and they say, well, that, you know, that God of the Old Testament, he's really just, uh, he flies off the handle. Uh, it's blasphemous to think of, uh, but, but that's, the, that's the charge that's leveled, right? That, that the God of the Old Testament is just vengeful and wrathful, and he takes any opportunity to, to crush peoples of the world. But the Lord is saying, you know, for three transgressions I've been waiting, and I, my hand has stayed, and I haven't brought good judgment. But I'm confronting now Damascus, in this, in this case, 
I'm confronting you with the one that's over and above. I could have brought judgment four sins ago, but I waited. But now it's gone too far. And we see this, this God that we recognize throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament who is slow of anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he does the same thing with the nations that he does with his own people. And he, and he holds back and he, and he withholds judgment even though it would be just to bring it. He withholds judgment waiting for mercy. And I think that's important for us to see. Um, that, that the Lord is not roaring from Zion because he's coming down in a flash of lightning and, and all he wants is to destroy everybody. No, no, no. The, the Lord is slow uh, to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's what we see, and we see it repeated. Uh, we see it repeated. Now, um, again, this is, this is the double-edged sword, that if, if you were uh, in Israel uh, or in Judah and Amos shows up and he says, you know, the Lord's been holding back judgment on Gaza and on Syria... You wouldn't like that very much. The Lord ought to come and judge our enemies. He ought to, he ought to bring the, the fist of his wrath down upon these peoples. Um, but then when the tables are turned and Amos says, he's been withholding judgment on you, and all of a sudden it's a, it's a sense of, well, isn't it nice? <laughs> isn't it nice that the Lord is, uh, is slow to anger? Yeah, absolutely. What else do you see about some of this that, that shows us something about God? John? Absolutely. So I think that is the reference of Hazael, um, which, which at this point would have been uh, at least 70 or 80 years earlier uh, than Amos is writing, but, but the Lord is, is still watching. Um, and, you know, I think the, when, you, when you look at both of these, and, and John, you're doing exactly what we need to do when we read the prophets. We're comparing Scripture with Scripture. What do we see uh, in the narratives of First and Second Kings with Hazael? What do we see here in Amos? And you can imagine yourself as one of the people of Gilead when Hazael is coming in and, and uh, I'm sorry, was it Elijah or Elisha? Uh, Elisha, um, who stared at Hazael until he was embarrassed and then Elisha began to weep. Uh, and Hazael asked him why he was weeping. He says, because I've seen what you're going to do to the children of Israel, how you're going to rip open mothers and you're going to dash children upon rock and, and terrible, terrible wickedness. And as this is happening, you can imagine yourself in Israel thinking, doesn't the Lord care? Doesn't the Lord see? Isn't, isn't the Lord watching the way that Hazael and Damascus are coming in and threshing us as though with threshing sledges of iron? Doesn't the Lord know what's happening uh, to his people? Uh, but he foretold it, and he judged it, and he was in control the whole time. It's the same dynamic that you find in Revelation. Uh, when the saints are crying out, how long, O Lord? And he tells them to put on robes of white and to wait a little bit longer until the full number is brought in. Not as though the Lord is aloof. Not as though the Lord has forgotten what's happening to his people are being persecuted. We pray for the persecuted church every single week. Uh, and we can imagine some of those there 
crying out, how long, O Lord? How long in the Maldives will we be praying today? How long will believers not be able to meet with other believers and engage in fellowship, not be able to worship the Lord their God uh, in the privacy of their own home even? And how long will these things happen? And does God even pay attention? And I think what we, what we gather from Amos, what we gather from Revelation is the, the Lord says, wait, I haven't ignored it. I haven't forgotten you. I'm still involved here. Uh, and I'm, I'm working something that's bigger than, than we can understand. It doesn't make it easy when you're in the midst of that. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be in the midst of that. But I think it's this reminder that from beginning to end, the Lord has already established these times and these seasons, even the seasons of cruelty and, and persecution. And, and he's the one who calls to account those who are the agents of these things. Thank you for, for that reference. That's really good. What else in these, these other nations? Brian? Like, which, which of these? I, I totally agree with you. Yep. 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 Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And again, ripping open the pregnant woman in Gilead. And there's a motivation there, too. Yeah. Yep. Now, notice that, that one. I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. There are a few dynamics that, that make that even bigger, though. Um, that with Ammon, um, they are ripping open pregnant women in Gilead. But the idea is that it wasn't because they were being attacked. It wasn't because there was cruelty or bloodshed uh, leveled against them, but to enlarge their borders. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and he's taking these nations to task. Notice, here's one that jumps out at me, and it just seems like uh, this is the odd man out, um, but look at, uh, at Moab, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, three transgressions of Moab and four, I'll not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now, that also is, is war language, it's total destruction. It's not only killing, but, but dethroning their king and killing him and then burning his body and crushing him to dust as a show of contempt. But this is not leveled against God's people, Israel or Judah. This is something happening from nation to nation outside the border of God's covenant people. The Lord is taking them to task because they're being inhuman, not because they're, they're transgressing the, the covenant of, of God and, and uh, pressing down his particular people, that this isn't just about God uh, standing up and saying, you have hurt my children and so I'm going to thump you. God is saying all of these nations ought to know better. And this idea of, of over and above what was necessary, bloodshed and warfare, absolutely. The Lord is, is coming and he's saying, you, you ought to have known better. You, you ought to have uh, not uh, used this, this warfare and these uh, these means in order just to get larger borders or, or to show how powerful you were. And, and 
And recognizing what's behind that helps us to see what the Lord cares about. Right? Good. Um, I had a had a really long quote. I'm not going to read it. Uh, I can share it with you later, though. Uh, But it was Sam Harris, who's one of these um, new atheist guys, and he was asked, how do you define good and evil? Um, And he basically said that um, he thinks it's uh, a fallacy that uh, we need to have God tell us what's good and evil, because we all actually agree on what's good and evil. And then he talks about the way that many people throughout the ages have disagreed with his idea of good and evil. It's just really interesting. I can share it with you later if you want to see it. Uh, But he basically uses the crowdsourcing approach. If everybody agrees on what is evil, then that's evil. Um, But then he it's it's interesting. But but I was connecting it here, especially to this this idea with Moab. and, And God isn't just taking them to task because they're transgressing his specific commands, but because they're being inhuman toward one another. Uh, and they are, they are being cruel above and beyond what is, what is necessary. Uh, we've got a few minutes. Let's switch to think about Judah. We see the Lord uh, judging the nations. We see him judging them for just uh, outstanding cruelty against one another. How does that change when he deals with Judah and with Israel? And how is their sin more heinous than what the other nations have done? How does the standard change? And how is their sin more heinous? I saw Tim first. Oh, Tim. Okay, go ahead. What do you want to say, Tim? Yes. Yes. He was. And, and this is also interesting because often in the prophets, uh, think of uh, if you were here, the time that we spent in Micah, Micah, along with Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Micah, Micah rails against the leaders of Israel for leading the people astray. Uh, but yeah, we're talking about Uzziah, who, who was prideful. He thought he could go into the temple and offer incense. He shouldn't have. But the Bible does tell us, uh, and he, he's also known... Um, Oh, what, what do they call him? Uh, Azariah. King Uzziah is also known as Azariah in, uh, in 2 Kings. Um, he's prideful, uh, but he's a good king. And so the Lord is not just uh, taking the leaders to task, but he goes on down the list, and it's the people themselves who are transgressing. And they can't just say, oh, well, you know, that king that you gave us, you know, th- this woman that you put here with me, she tempted me. And I, no, 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 it, it doesn't work like that. Uh, the Lord is taking the people to task, and what is he taking them to task for? Rejecting the law of God. Unlike the other nations, they have this great blessing and benefit that the Lord has spoken at Sinai. He's uttered his voice and shaken the mountain, and they heard it, and they heard it so much that they said, Moses, you go and talk to God because we don't want him to talk to us anymore lest we die. And he's spoken to them, and he's given them his law, and yet they've, they've thrown it off. They are, in effect, living as though they were the Gentile nations around them. 
they're giving up this great blessing that the Lord has given them. And because they, they uh, don't think that, that the law is worth paying attention to, they cast it off. And then they begin to go in another direction. Tim. Notice, um, back in verse 4, we'll, we'll get to that one, Scott. I think that one's really important, too. Um, back in verse 4, this idea of they've rejected the law of the Lord. Um, here's the punishment that goes over and above. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. And there is this trajectory that when you reject God's law and his precepts, you begin to live in a different way. He's not just saying, oh, you don't believe the right, your problem is a problem of doctrine, but really you're pretty good people. He's saying, no, this is the way it happens. If you reject the truth of who God is, you inevitably go in the direction of the rest of the world. And this ought to bring to mind Romans 1, that, uh, that God and his Wrath against unrighteousness is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men who, by their ungodliness, suppress the truth. And it begins with this idea of knowing what, what God is about. Even if you've never heard, he's talking about the Gentiles too, even if you've never heard his voice thundering from Sinai, you know what he's about. In fact, that's what Sam Harris was saying. We all have these intuitions, says Sam Harris, about what's good and evil. Well, why? Because you know something of God and his power and his uh, his being because you've been made in his image. And Romans says that knowing the truth about God, you suppress it. And then it goes on, not just to a doctrinal issue, but Romans, uh, turn there with me. Uh, this, is, uh, this is important because I think Paul is, is just bringing out the same thing that Amos is saying. Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the first problem is not obeying or listening to or acknowledging the truth of who God is. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. People read things like Amos, where the Lord thunders from Zion against the nations of the world, and they say, how dare you say that your God can hold everybody accountable? The Bible says they're without excuse. What about the nations out in Borneo somewhere that have never heard of Jesus Christ? They are without excuse. Everything that, that can be known or needs to be known to hold men accountable to the truth of who God is, that there is a creator that's above us and he has a moral code that is engraven upon the heart of every man and woman and child because we're made in his image, they are without excuse. And so 
Paul continues to go with this. They, they, uh, they became futile in their thinking, and he begins with a theological problem, and it, it filters through um, to, to moral ideas. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not, ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, their gossip, slanderers, hate, and it goes on. And it begins with this, you suppress the truth of God and you end up as a malicious gossip and all of these other terrible things. And there is a direct line between those two. That's the same thing that the Lord is saying to Amos. You have rejected the law of God and inevitably here's what happens. You go in the direction of the rest of the world. You begin to look more and more like the pagans who are around you. And in fact, what you do is you go in the, in the way of destruction. I think that's important for us to see. Uh, now, Scott, back to, uh, back to verse 7. Help us to be uh, reoriented here. Um, what were you saying about verse 7 and, and this idea of profaning the Lord's name? What did we say was so, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'd have to check and see. There's probably some difference in the language, and I don't know what what may be behind that. Um, yeah, whether whether sending a fire or kindling a fire is different. Um, we began by saying what was so important about the Lord roaring from Zion, because Zion was where he had put his name, right? It's where he decided that he should be known among the nations. Uh, and uh, Scott, you're exactly right. Part of the heinousness of their sin um, is that they are doing all these things in the sight of the nations, in the temple of God, uh, and doing it in such a way that God's name is profaned. Um, James Montgomery Boyce makes a really good case that um, in verses um, 7b and 8, so it begins with a man and his father going to the same girl, so that, or another commentator says, in order that, that it's malicious 
they do this in order to profane God's name. And, and that sort of reveals what all sin is. It's a, it's a thum, thumbing the nose against the Lord who has told us what not uh, to do. Um, but uh, James Montgomery Boyce says that, that beginning with that phrase, a man and his father go into the same girl, uh, that this is one situation and these are heaped on top of one another. He's not talking about a list of sins, but you can imagine uh, the, the debauchery here. A man and his son share the same girl, um, and in the pagan temple cults, that's how it happened. Um, their gods were largely fertility gods, and the way that you tried to convince them to fertilize the crops is that you engaged in coitus uh, and sort of tried to show Baal what he was supposed to do. And so it became part of their worship. Um, and, uh, and so the idea is there's this false worship um, and he says, they, they go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. And where are they doing it? Well, they're laying themselves down beside the altar on garments taken in pledge. What should you never do with the garment that belongs to a poor person? You should never take that garment as a pledge if he owes you money, because then when it gets cold at night, they have nothing to wrap themselves in. So here are these prosperous people who have taken the, the, literally the shirt off the back of the poor in Israel, and they're using that as a mat to engage in debauchery in the temple of the Lord, and they're doing it drunk on the wine that they have received through levying fines against them. Fines in Israel were never supposed to be levied and paid to the state. It was always a person-to-person -person reparation. If Scott has wronged John, Scott pays John. Scott doesn't pay the priest in the temple for the wrong that he's done to John, but here are these people who are taking advantage of this system, and they're stealing the shirt off the back and the money from the people, and they're using it for their own debauchery. And it's this, it's this terrible, terrible picture, uh, even though the Lord has told them what they ought to do. Now, um, what makes this worse uh, is this idea that they have forsaken the law of the Lord. Um, in Leviticus chapter 18, you don't have to turn there, but you might want to make a reference of it. Uh, everybody knows Leviticus 18. It's the chapter in the Old Testament that deals with all the sexual sins, what ought not to be done, who you ought not to approach, and all of these things. And, and they were uh, specific abominations that the Lord lists. But there is a setting in Leviticus 18, the beginning and the end of that chapter, and this is what the Lord says about all of these sexual sins that he's telling his people about Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And then a whole list of sexual sins. And then at the end, verses 24 to 28, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that were before you. And the Lord is giving this picture of extreme debauchery 
sexual sin, drinking the wine of those who have been fined and laying on their garments in the temple of the Lord, and then notice what he says immediately afterwards. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. And it was I who brought you up out of Egypt. And he's reminding them, not only have you spurned the word of the Lord, but you've taken the blessings that he's given, the, the salvation, we could say, with a, a small s, not a capital S, the salvation that the Israelites experience, and you're just spurning it. Yeah, the Lord drove them out because they were wicked people. Let's do the same thing. And they're engaging in just the same things that the nations around them are engaging in. But there is this trajectory. And you heard it in Leviticus 18. You shall be careful to keep my statutes which I give you so that you don't do these things and incur judgment. Now, I think um, we're already out of time, but this is a good place for us to remember. Um, the words of the New Testament, if, uh, if judgment is to begin and to begin at the house of God, how much more ought we to be zealous for the things that the Lord has taught us? We're not saved by our holiness, not saved by our righteousness or our keeping the law of God, but the Lord who calls us, calls us to be holy as he, has, as he is holy. All believers are called to a life of holiness. And we can't just neglect that. We can't just toss that aside and say, well, uh, I'm saved by grace through faith, and so I don't need to pay attention to the rules the Lord has given. The commandments mean nothing to me anymore, and especially the commandment to walk in love toward one another and to fulfill the whole law of Christ. This is the sort of language that Paul used. We need to recognize that, that the Lord holds those, even who are within his covenant people, accountable for their sins. And that being a member of a church and, and having been baptized and having been joined to an external covenant community as these people were is never enough to give us salvation and to bring us to the Lord. There, there, is, there is no external ceremony. There's no sacrament. There's nothing that we can do. There's no magical prayer we can pray that by itself, without faith and repentance, will bring us to the Lord. And this is a message of judgment for the people of God. And I think we ought to see that and we ought to recognize the trajectory so that we can, uh, we can recognize it if it shows up in our own lives. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, you are good, kind, and gracious. And we confess that uh, we, even your people, have sinned and gone astray. And so we pray that you would remind us of your holiness. Remind us of Jesus Christ, who has taken all the curses of covenant failure and covenant breaking on behalf of all of your elect, and you are drawing to yourself through faith and repentance. Remind us that our sins are laid on him, and they will not stand against us for they've been put aside, nailed to the cross. Thank you that Christ is our substitute and our Savior. Oh, we pray that you would save us from our sin. We pray that you would keep us walking in your statutes. We pray that your word would be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Oh, Lord, that you would keep us walking in your ways and listening to your word. Help us to do that even as we come into worship in just a few minutes and prepare our hearts that we would see you and rejoice in you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.